The first reading comes from Acts chapter 22. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the Lord, of the law, and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptised, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, Leave Jerusalem immediately, because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go. I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The second reading is from Galatians chapter 1. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, 
who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. My immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. This is the word of the Lord. When I unmute myself, my apologies. So if you can have them both handy, uh, pages 9 and 10 of your orders of service or your zines, uh, as we call them, at 6pm. But first, let me pray for us. Father, thank you uh, for the gospel that Chloe just spoke of, the gospel of grace, the good news of grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. Uh, Please apply it to both our minds and our hearts this evening uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Christopher Ashe, the British author and preacher, tells this modern-day parable. Jason is five. He's visiting his granny. And granny is dozing after lunch, and Jason wanders into the kitchen. And on the shelf in the kitchen, he sees a bottle. It contains about 200 brightly coloured round things that he takes to be lollies. Granny had said that she had a treat for him after lunch. There's a white label on the bottle, but Jason can't read it. And he opens the bottle because he's developed the skill of opening childproof lids. And he can't believe his luck. A whole pile of yummy lollies. He's on the point of popping the first handful into his mouth when Granny walks in. Oh, hello, Jason, she says. Those look nice. Of course, I believe that those are very powerful medicines that I need for my heart condition. And I have to take an absolute maximum of one a day. It could be very dangerous to take more. That's what I believe. But I expect that's only because I've been brought up to read the label that way. What do you think they are? The little boy replies, well, well I think they're yummy lollies, Granny. They, they look like yummy lollies, and that's what I believe they are. And I'm going to eat them. Oh, well, says Granny in the parable, I mustn't be narrow-minded or dogmatic. I mean, who's to tell if my opinion or yours is right? We can never be sure about belief. We must be tolerant. We must live together in harmony. So you choose, and I won't have the arrogance to tell you that you're wrong. Go ahead. 
And he does. And he dies. And that's the parable. A cheerful parable for a Sunday evening at the start of the week. But facts matter. And truth matters. And you know, this is what goes right through Paul's letter to the Galatians. The granny's belief in that parable was a true belief. And the little boy's a false one. And it matters. You might have heard people say, well, isn't it good to have faith? And that people of faith should all get together and work together. But that little boy had faith. He believed they were lollies. But his faith was a wrong faith. And it mattered. And in our culture, we acknowledge that there are certain things that are matters of fact, that science, for example, or economics, or the political landscape. I mean, we might argue about it, but there's no doubt that when we're arguing that what we're arguing about um, is based and grounded in underlying facts. There is a truth uh, whether or not we can get hold of it. But when it comes to the eternal destiny of men and women, we've given up in our culture considering it an issue of fact. But when you and I die, something will happen to us objectively. And now some people think we'll simply cease to be. And some people think that it will be sort of like a shadowy continuance in the spirit world. Some think it will be reincarnation. And some think it will be a sort of a happy afterlife for all. Well, Christians believe it will be resurrection and judgment leading to heaven for some and hell for others. But whatever happens, happens. And when whatever happens, happens, it'll be no good our saying, this cannot be happening to me. I believed something else would happen, and I really believed that my believing would somehow make that something else happen. We can't say that, because whatever happens will happen. The little boy believed that they were lollies, but his belief didn't do him any good. And so perhaps we can begin to understand a little the temperature of Paul's letter to the Galatians. Last week in chapter 1, verse 8, Paul said a terrible thing to our modern ears. He said, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. Let them be anathema. Let them be eternally condemned for teaching anything other than the Christian gospel. Why is Paul so heated? Because he is. If you read the whole letter, you're going to see that he very much is. You know, our instinct is to say, well, Paul, that's, that's very narrow-minded and, and bigoted of you. How can you possibly say that there's only one gospel that's true and that all other belief systems are false and that only Christianity is true? How can you possibly, how do you dare say that? How can you say that it really matters that all people believe what you believe and, and, and not other things? But that's what Paul says and what he continues to say over and over again in, in Galatians. And you know, the reason is, is that he loves the people he's speaking to. Just as with that parable, uh, any granny worth the name would say to that little boy, uh, those aren't lollies. 
And if anybody tells you that they are lollies, well, they deserve to be locked up for a very long time because what they claim to be good for you is actually poison. And that's why Paul gets so heated. Not because he's bigoted or narrow-minded, but because he loves people and he cares for their eternal destiny. So I guess that leaves us with a question this evening, doesn't it? Who's to say that Paul's gospel, the Christian gospel, is the right one? Who's to say that the Christian worldview, the Christian claims about heaven and hell, are authoritative? And no doubt, by the way, this is the same question that the Galatians were asking themselves. They'd received conflicting teaching from Jerusalem, the centre of their religious world. That teaching purported to come from James, Jesus' brother, and no doubt from the other disciples as well. And so who is this Paul? He wasn't a disciple. How dare he claim that his gospel is the right one to the exclusion of everyone else? Where's your proof, Paul? What authority do you have to make claims like this? Where's the evidence? Well, to answer these questions, Paul gives us the most powerful proof that he possesses, the most convincing proof that any Christian possesses. Paul shares with us, just as Chloe did a moment before, his personal experience of Jesus. He gives his spiritual autobiography, his personal testimony. Because Paul knows that his transformed life is the most compelling case that he can make for the truth of the gospel. Never forget how powerful your personal testimony is. Uh, for me, by far and away, the strongest proof of the existence of God and the truth of the gospel of Jesus is how I've been changed by it. And perhaps if you're here this evening investigating Christianity, well, why not ask a Christian what happened to them? Personal testimony is powerful. And I love that Paul's personal testimony it not only provides the strongest of evidences for the truth of the gospel, but it also so clearly portrays in his own life what this gospel of grace is. And so firstly, we're going to look at the evidence for the gospel in the life of Paul. And then secondly, we're going to, look, we're going to come to understand the gospel of grace using Paul's life as an example. So, so firstly, evidence for the gospel in the life of Paul. Why is Paul's gospel the only true gospel? What's the, the difference between the Christian gospel and any other message that might claim our allegiance. The answer is there in verses 11 and 12, where Paul says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, which includes us, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Paul's gospel was given to him directly by Jesus which means it's God's gospel. Or other gospels and belief systems are made up by men, taught by men, received from men. But Paul's gospel, the one true gospel, came from God. But I can hear you thinking, well, where's your proof, Paul? I think Paul would answer, and in fact he does answer, um, with his life. See verses 13 and 14. He says, for you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. 
I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. You see, Paul was a young rising star in Judaism. He trained under Gamaliel, who was the most eminent scholar of his generation. Now, the Galatians don't think Paul's gospel is Jewish enough, but there was no one more Jewish than Paul circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, Paul was faultless. That's from Philippians 3. And did you catch that part about Paul in his religious zeal, persecuting the Christian church? In World War II, as part of Hitler's final solution to the Jewish question, Gestapo troops went from house to house, dragging Jewish men and women, sometimes children, off to concentration camps to face firing squads or the gas chamber. Paul was one of these. In Acts, we read of his murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, his persecution of Christians to their deaths, arresting both men and women and throwing them in prison. And when they were put to death, he cast his vote against them. And this is exactly what Paul was full of on the road to Damascus when he was converted. He'd killed many innocent people, and he was on his way to arrest and imprison more. But Paul was utterly convinced that Jesus Christ was an imposter, and his goal was nothing less than the total extermination of Christianity. Until Jesus appeared to him, until Jesus broke into his life on the road to Damascus and turned his life completely on its head. Listen to Paul's own words from our reading from Acts 22. There he says, I persecuted the followers of this way, Christianity, to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison as the high priest and all the council themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. And that's when Paul received the gospel and how he can say in our Galatians passage today, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. You see, on the day that Paul was converted, he wasn't experiencing a moment of personal crisis or a moment of uncertainty or guilt over his actions. He was single-mindedly on his way to Damascus to murder Christians. Nothing short of direct supernatural intervention was going to stop Paul. Paul did sit back in his study and sort of tease out the gospel from the Old Testament scriptures, nor did he receive it secondhand from anyone. He was so sure that it was false, he was on his way to murder Christians until Jesus blocked his path, deeply shamed him, and then utterly astonished him with the revelation that his zeal and passion were completely misdirected. And that's the strongest proof that Paul can offer that his gospel 
came from God, his humiliation, his humbling, his conversion, and the extraordinary transformation that came over him when Jesus broke into his life. Verses 23 and 24. People from all over the Mediterranean began saying, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me, concludes Paul. To further prove his point, uh, Paul then relays to us what happened next. Uh, confident uh, in the gospel he'd received, he didn't immediately travel to Jerusalem to sort of swap notes with Peter and James just to check that his gospel was right. Uh, he knew he got it from uh, Jesus, and so he went preaching in Arabia for three years. That's in verse 17. And then uh, when he finally went to Jerusalem, well, he only spent 15 days there. And according to the book of, the Act, of Acts, most of the time in Jerusalem then was spent preaching along with a few moments to get to know Peter. And in fact, as we'll see next week, in the beginning of chapter 2, it wasn't until 14 years after his conversion that Paul sort of substantially compared his gospel with the gospel of Jesus' disciples, at which point it checked out completely. Because their gospel came from exactly the same place as his. Not the words of man, not something made up by men, or from the traditions of the church, Paul's gospel and the disciples' gospel were one in the same because they both were received directly from Jesus. And so that's why there's only one true gospel. That's why no other gospel works. Because every other gospel, every other belief system is made up by man, but this one comes from God. But you know, and, and to my second point, I love that Paul's conversion doesn't just provide us with strong evidence that the gospel of grace is true. I love that it also shows us so clearly what this gospel of grace is. The one true gospel. The only means under heaven by which a person can be saved. Received by direct revelation from Jesus Christ himself is the gospel, which means the good news of grace. And grace is the free, unmerited favour of God working powerfully on the mind and heart to change lives. And grace is exactly what happened to Paul. See, Paul used to live by the gospel of I. Do you see it there in verses 13 and 14? Let me read. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond my, many of my own age, among my people, and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers, the gospel of I. Uh, Paul's version of the gospel of I was, well, it was religious rule-keeping. Uh, your version might be different. Uh, your version might be uh, when I have that house in the suburbs, or, or when I get married, or, or when I retire, then I'll attain, or, or then I'll be happy, or then I'll be deserving, or then I'll be loved. Or whatever the message is that you cling to, the gospel of I. For Paul, it was religious rule-keeping. And he threw everything he had into it, like many of you are doing with your career or that relationship that it was the gospel of I and not the gospel of God. And so it didn't work. And look where it led to Paul. for Paul. It led to sin and murder. He thought he was doing the right thing at the time. He was trying to do good, and yet evil was the result. 
maybe your motives are pure. But the Bible says that zeal without knowledge is dangerous. And in his religious zeal, Paul becomes a murderer. And then in the middle of it all, as someone at our table at Alpha described it this week, Paul got zapped. Imagine how he felt in that moment, seeing the blood on his hands for the very first time. He was on the way to murder some more Christians. And then completely out of the blue, God chose him. Jesus Christ broke into his life through nothing he'd done, despite everything that he'd done. And we see so clearly in the life of Paul that grace is undeserved. We can't earn it or merit it. It's a free gift. The idea of which runs completely against the grain of every human gospel. As C.S. Lewis once said, Christianity must be from God, for who else could have thought it up? Grace is so humbling. Acknowledging we've done wrong. Acknowledging that we can't do this ourselves. Saying out loud that the message we're clinging to isn't really working out for us. And we, in fact, have nowhere else to turn. What message are you clinging to? How is your gospel working out for you? Are you happy? Are you anxious or uncertain about the future? Are you falling behind? Do you always feel, perhaps like Chloe did, that you have something to prove? Well, here's the good news. Grace can't be earned, and it's never deserved. Grace, the most beautiful word in the English language, is free. It's the unmerited favor of God, working powerfully in the mind and heart to change lives. And the same powerful transformation, the same freedom, the same forgiveness that came over Paul can come over you too. No one is so good that they don't need the grace of the gospel, says Timothy Keller. And no one's so bad that they can't receive the grace of the gospel. The gospel will do the same things in our lives that it did in Paul's life. Now, of course, not exactly the same thing because there was only one Paul. But it is the same gospel. Perhaps we never persecuted anyone or kidnapped people or or voted for their execution. But we are still sinners who need the gospel. We're evil by nature. And thus we need the gospel to take us from where we are to where we ought to be. Tom Papania, his grandfather, was a criminal who helped bring organised crime from Sicily to America. And Papineer himself was a hard man when he was only 10 years old during one of the many beatings that he received from his father. He vowed that he would never shed another tear as long as he lived. He'd never cry again. He became a thief, an extortionist, and a murderer. Eventually, he became the number two man in the New York Mafia. His heart was so cold that when hardened criminals looked into his eyes, they saw nothing but death. Eventually, God began to speak to Papanea's heart, but he refused to listen. He didn't want God to have any power over him, and so he decided to outsmart God. He, he figured that he was probably about to die for his sins, but before God had a chance to kill him, he was going to kill himself. 
And as Papania put the gun to his head, the telephone rang. It was a man who'd been inviting him to church. And just to prove that God didn't have any power over him, Papania decided to go to church after all. When the service was finished, he met the minister at the back door of the church. The minister said to him, I have something I want to say to you, but I don't want to offend you. The eyes are the window of the soul. When you first came in here, I looked into your eyes, and all I could see was a little boy crying, wanting to be loved. By saying this, the pastor exposed Papania's most painful secret. The Papania didn't want anyone to know that he had a weakness. And so he went back to church later that night to murder the minister. When he got to the church, he found to his amazement that he couldn't go through with it. And as the two men began to talk, the minister asked him if he knew Jesus and told him that he needed to be born again. Papania laughed and he said, Pastor, if these people in this church found out who I was, they'd throw both of us out of here. I'm probably the biggest sinner that you'll ever, meet, you'll ever see, if, even if you live to be a million years old. These people don't want me here. I'm a sinner. And then Papania began to recount all his crimes. See, he was trying to get the minister off his back about being born again. He wanted to convince him that he was so bad that God was about to kill him. It was just that he was one step ahead of God in trying to take his own life. But what he was really doing was confessing his sins. And before he knew it, Papania found himself kneeling on the ground with 30 years of tears freely flowing down his cheeks, opening the door of his heart to let Jesus in. He said, I found Jesus. And I've been searching for him all my life. And now that I've, I've found him, I'm, I'm not letting him go. And so from mafia to ministry, Papania went on to become a prison evangelist. His life was changed by the gospel. I also see lives changed by the gospel in this room tonight. I think about the lives that we would still be leading if we'd never come to Christ. Or I think about the way that we used to live. Some of us, no doubt, were thieves. Some of us, perhaps, even felons. Some of us were violent and abusive. Some of us were addicted to sexual sin. Some of us were liars and cheats. And the rest of us seemed like relatively nice people but we lived only for ourselves. And then God changed us. At first, he called us by his grace. Someone told us that there was a way to have friendship with God. And next, God revealed to us his son. He showed us the gospel of the cross and the empty tomb. And we saw that our sins could be forgiven through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then he set us apart for his service. We began to love others people we wouldn't perhaps normally love. And we began to live for God. This is what the gospel does. It changes a, whole, a person's whole life. And God can bring the same change to your life. It's very simple. All you need to do is trust in Jesus Christ. How about I pray about that?
Father, thank you for the gospel of grace, so freely given to us and so utterly undeserved. Thank you that grace changes everything. Thank you that by it we know we are loved unconditionally, that our sins are forgiven and that our future is sure. We pray now for anyone in this room walking their own road to Damascus. Lord Jesus, break into their lives in this moment. Flood their lives with joy and peace in believing and enable them to receive you today as their Lord and Saviour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.